Welcome to the Wheel of Sports, home of the greatest sports stories ever told. My name's Ian McNally and with me all the way in Edinburgh, Scotland. Matt Lavery, Matt Lavery. How's it going, Ian? Very well, Matt. It's, uh, you know, we're getting, we're getting cold at this time of year in uh, Melbourne, Australia. How is it in Scotland? Yeah, look, it's uh, it's all right. I mean, looking out of my window, I can see that it's getting slightly warmer, I think. But, you know, we've got a thermostat. <laughs> <laughs> this is quality content. <laughs> well, let's, let's... Luckily, I've had the wheel spinning. And uh, yeah, let's get... <laughs> it says here, it's a golden moment. Golden moments. Excellent. Well... Look, I'm going to take this one, Matt, because um, we would normally not reveal the date that we are recording on. But I think in this case, it's very important that I tell you that when we're recording this, it's on April the 6th. And this story basically ends up with a prince throwing a weight off a dumbbell quite a distance and two men wrestling in the dark. And of course, Matt, I'm taking you back to the 6th of April, 1896. Oh, the Wheel of History with Ian McNally. Love it. (laughs) And as you know, Matt, 1896 on the 6th of April was the opening ceremony for the first ever modern Olympic Games. Oh, that's a good stat in Athens. Fantastic. I didn't know that. It was the 6th of April to the 15th of April. So it's only a couple of weeks, really. And uh, let, let's paint the picture here. Like, um, Pierre de Coubertin, who basically, he started and organised this event, this, like, elongated sports day. But he'd... Yeah. <laughs> Olympics. Elongated sports day. <laughs> nice. <laughs> it's basically, like, teachers who have run out of curriculum and they've still got two weeks of school left. <laughs> what are we going to do with the kids? We'll have an Olympics. And obviously the Olympic, the ancient Olympics, uh, you know, had quite a history and, and was uh, kind of embroidered in human uh, existence uh, for centuries. But de Coubertin really got his inspiration from these really small kind of sports events that were organized in England. Uh, one of them was the Wenlock Olympic Games, which is in a rural town of much uh, Wenlock in Shropshire. I mean, like he really looked at this as the template for the modern Olympics, Matt. I mean, I don't know if you've been to any rural towns in Shropshire. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't have thought they'd be big enough. no exactly like i uh lived for a while in a rural town very close to shrewsbury in shropshire let shropshire is the birthplace of charles darwin and let's just say the locals in this town didn't seem to understand evolution so <laughs> back in this <laughs> wenlock olympic games the, the games were like cricket, which you wouldn't think was a traditional Olympic sport. Football was another one. And coits. <laughs> coits. Coits. Is that like, um, 
It's a bit like Skittles. Yeah, do you remember the... Uh, they used to have... The, the only time I, uh, I've really heard the word coits in my life is probably between grade four and grade six when the, the primary school teacher would say, get the coits out. And they were these, like, rubber rubber rings that you'd, like, throw um, to to get on the on the poles and get different points. But... Oh, right, like like ring toss. Yeah, like ring toss, yeah. But the, we never used coits in school like that. We used them to put on our heads and, and walk. You had to, like... Because the school hall was too small to run in. So they used to put coits on our head, so we had to slow down. <laughs> it's a good job Pierre de Coubertin didn't come to my primary school. The, the modern Olympics would have looked very different. <laughs> <laughs> But he basically took inspiration from... Uh, there's a guy called William Penny Brooks who started the uh, Wenlock Olympic Games. And Pierre de Coubertin, big big admirer of it, he kind of locked onto this idea of making this an international um, elongated sports day. By the time we get to 1896, the decision to have it in Athens is like a no-brainer. It's like, we're going to link this up with the ancient Olympic Games, Athens, the home of the ancient Olympics, modern Olympics. The first one has to take place in Athens, nowhere else. And so 14 nations take part. There's 241 athletes who take place, all men. Right, wow, okay. 65% of those 241, they were Greek. (laughs) Big squad. So, yeah, it kind of makes sense. But the other thing is, is because there's no precedent apart from the ancient Olympics, the kind of organisation behind it is quite difficult as well because, I mean, it kind of makes sense that 65% of the field would be Greek because a lot of the other competitors were only competing because they happened to be in Athens at the time and had just heard about it. So they, some of the athletes just like went to sign up on the day. <laughs> Which is brilliant, isn't it? You know, like some of the British competitors just happened to be working at the British Embassy and, you know, they they thought, oh, we'll give it a go. This sounds like fun. Of course, no women, um, just the men could take part. And also the other interesting thing is that what medal did the winners get, Matt? What medal did they get for winning an Olympic event in the first modern Olympics? Well, it's obviously not a gold medal. Silver. Is that right? God, that's interesting. Why did they why did they introduce gold then? Do we know? So it it's really interesting because the the medal you got a winner got silver, the second place got copper, and the third place got nothing. <laughs> right. <laughs> got nothing. So they they changed that retrospectively, um quite not that um, long after the Olympic, the first Olympics, uh, to gold, silver, and bronze, and they retrospectively uh, gifted the medals to the competitors. All oh, right. So all the third place guys all suddenly became uh, bronze placed. Yeah, and so they uh, and that made made sure that the first ever modern Olympics was now in line with all the future Olympics that were going to take place. So yeah, it's well, it's interesting that that first one, you know. You know, you're telling your mates in the pub 30 years later, oh, I won silver at the Olympic Games. <laughs> you know, no, no, I, I, I won. <laughs> but um, of those uh, 14 countries that took part, four of them 
didn't win any medals whatsoever. And the medals were kind of dominated by the USA. They won 11 what then became gold medals. They won 11 gold medals. Greece collectively won 46 medals. Oh, wow. (laughs) And the athletes generally as well, one of the big barriers for them taking part was the fact that they needed their own accommodation. Uh, they needed to kind of look after themselves and and uh, be completely self-sufficient because the Olympic Village and the concept of the Olympic Village didn't come into play until the uh, Los Angeles Olympics in 1932. So it really was um, not the same kind of carnival atmosphere in terms of uh, what the athletes get up to after after hours but as you say travel must have been so different you know it's not like you can just hop on a plane or charter a flight or you know it's it's going to be down to who can afford to send athletes as well right yeah and also you you know each country has its own sport events and so on and the kind of sense was that this is a nice ceremonious thing but you know, is it, are you being paid a huge amount of money to do it? Is it worth your while? If you're not in Athens, is is it really worth traveling? There was one um, US athlete who came over to Athens to compete and uh, was forbidden by his college to do so. And he came and won gold medals, went back to the USA and his college disqualified him from and <laughs> threw him out of the college. Wow, well, because they as, just as thought punishment. it was an inferior tournament to be risking your well, fitness in. Well, yeah, well, they just say he disobeyed their wishes and um, that was it. So the, the the other thing is, is that it did mirror one of the great events of the ancient Olympics was the marathon. Fittingly, a Greek man won the marathon, but the report is that he ran into the uh, stadium at the end and he'd been drinking wine and stuff on the way as well on the route so wow. he's probably t- turned up pissed like <laughs> to the stadium but apparently he became like rich overnight because people just had so much adoration because of this uh, mythological kind of idea of the ancient olympics in in greece and a greek person had won the marathon that ultimate event so they they were putting jewelry on him looking after him probably giving him some more wine and it's kind of uh, an amazing scene that would have uh, unfolded and the other thing is is and this is a strange thing as well is that son of the the king of greece prince george he was nominated for the whole of the olympic tournament as the referee <laughs> nice <laughs> I like that. What are your qualifications? I'm the son of the king. Yeah, so it was. It was. He exactly wouldn't have even that. known the rules, would he? Not really, because he there, there was instances where he made the rules as he went along. So amazing. Um, there was a case when um, in the weightlifting. <laughs> so good. Um, <laughs> in the weightlifting, uh, there was a Scot uh, Scottish fella like yourself called uh, Launceston Elliot. Now. Launceston Elliot, he was competing against a Danish um, weightlifter called Viggo Jensen. And Jensen had lifted like what would be now the clean and jerk. He lifted the weight. Launceston lifted the same weight. So they're completely level. The chairman, Prince George, 
says, uh, Jensen won because he, he did it in a better style. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so good. <laughs> so the Brit- the British delegation, they're fuming with him. They basically say this is a tiebreaker and there's no provision in the rule that Launceston Elliot should lose this because of that. So Prince George says, all right, that's fair enough. So you can both lift again, but, you know, do some heavier weights or whatever. So both lads, they try try to lift the heavier weights and uh, they can't do it. And so Prince George just goes, Jensen's the champion then, is he, after all? (laughs) (laughs) I love that. But the the beauty is, is that Launceston Elliot, he kind of got his own back because (laughs) Jensen had really strained himself trying to do the the two-handed attempts. And in the Olympics at the time, this first Olympics... There was a one-hand lift event. <laughs> oh, right. So it's like, do it with two hands, all right. How about one? And so Launceston Elliot uh, was able to um, lift the the one hand, in the one-hand lift event, was able to uh, boss Jensen. And the, there's a, a weird story that's because <laughs> Launceston Elliot reportedly and I've seen a, an old photograph of him, and I can concur with this, but he really caught the eye of the Greek audience. The Greek audience really took him to heart because they found him extraordinarily handsome, and they right. were very much enjoying his Scottish physique. So <laughs> this weird thing happens in the, that one-handed lift event was one of the servants that they had at the time. We'll call him a, a, a steward in the modern right. parlance. Right. <laughs> was probably in high vis. Uh, came over and removed the weights off off the uh, the dumbbells, mm-hmm. and he couldn't do it. This fella because it was too hard. They were too heavy. And so Prince George leapt out of his chair, came over, picked up one of the weights and threw it. (laughs) (laughs) Threw it as far as he could to to a a rapturous crowd. (laughs) Can you imagine? So was he just doing that to show that the steward wasn't as strong as the prince? I think he was pulling rank, yeah. He was just... (laughs) Just showing off. Just showing off, like, I'm stronger yeah. than you. Yeah, just brilliant, but also just, like, the showmanship to the crowd as well. And also, like, the crowd must have just been... Because you've got Launceston Elliot in the room, and then you've got your heir to the throne throwing weights across the room. I mean, it's almost <laughs> too much to take, isn't it? <laughs> A bizarre scene. I love it. So strange. And... um Look, the Olympics, it took place over a number of different um, venues, uh, like the modern Olympics does. And there was only one venue that they really uh, were reluctant to spend money on, and that was uh, for the swimming event. 
And so rather than build a swimming pool, they just said you can go and uh, swim in the bay just in a sea. <laughs> so, <laughs> so sadly, that had a real, really negative impact upon the athletes because some of the athletes, uh, the swimmers, weren't able to uh, swim because of the scheduling and also the water was too cold uh, so they were in the water for quite a long time and by the time they got out they weren't able to compete in the next event which was very soon after and so there was kind of I suppose these inevitable um, kind of mismatches or misfires because you know it's the first time of doing something and perhaps you don't have the same uh, the benefit of hindsight uh, same with the sailing and rowing as well it, it was on a schedule to happen but they just had to give up the events because they just didn't have enough boats they didn't have any kind of uh they didn't have enough competitors either so it oh, just no. really kind of fell apart and it's slightly embarrassing that something that was on the schedule just couldn't happen because in Athens at the time I mean you, you had literally tens of thousands of people turning up to see these events and it was a real spectacle so I suppose there's a couple of important points to kind of um, point out is when I read down the list of events that had happened in the first ever modern Olympics I was quite surprised because I was expecting to see some strange things on there but I'll just read out the the athletic events and it's 100 meters 400 meters 800 meters 1500 meters 110 meter hurdles marathon long jump triple jump high jump pole vault shot put discus that's it they're all yeah. they've all survived they've all survived yeah i was at what not even the mile i thought the mile might be in there no no not an event which is wow. extraordinary really the that core base has remained exactly the same and i suppose the only events you still have cycling fencing gymnastics sailing and rowing obviously didn't take place but was on the list shooting um swimming tennis was a big event at the time weightlifting wrestling and that's the categories so all of those are still olympic events i think uh, greco-roman wrestling might be on the brink of falling off the the schedule for future olympics um actually on that greco-roman wrestling mat <laughs> i did promise that this story would end up with two two men wrestling in the dark <laughs> so <laughs> it was holding in the uh in the main stadium and basically the rules in modern wrestling you would divide up the athletes by size yeah. because that seems fair and sensible <laughs> yeah but basically in in this event they said right okay every everyone who enters you just fight each other there's only going to be one winner <laughs> doesn't matter like what Rumble. size you are yeah doesn't matter what size you are doesn't matter your height your weight doesn't matter just basically there's no time limit for the bouts uh, again amazing <laughs> so how do, I don't, do, but surely they couldn't have had everybody in at once like a melee no no was, no so they eliminations was it or exactly yeah so there's eliminations and basically you, you compete to advance to the final um and so it, there is structure to it but there's the beauty about it is this is no time limit on the bouts 
so old mate Launceston Elliot, the handsome Scotsman. Yes, the muscle-bound <laughs> Scot. He ended up fighting a gymnast called Carl Schumann. Great. Carl Schumann did defeat Elliot, but then he had to fight a local man, uh, Georgius Cetas. And Georgius Cetas <laughs> had been in a bout where they fought for so long, it got dark. <laughs> they had to call off the fight <laughs> and come back the next day. <laughs> Brilliant. And they fought for 15 minutes and it was done. I love that. I like the idea of just letting them continue in the dark. <laughs> I just, yeah, it's so good. Like, when you think so, like, all sports in the modern day has a time limit of some sort. I think so, and yeah. There's like tennis, a pure... There's tennis? Yeah, well, you have time limit built into how quick you have to take your shot. So, although there's not a time limit on the the length of the game, you do have a built-in kind of speed. Whereas, this is... I think there's definitely a market for this, Matt. I'm not sure which sport it should be, but just having a no time limit, just wait until people get tired or are dead. Like, (laughs) (laughs) just... (laughs) You know... And it, we should have more time in uh, on our hands, and maybe this is a, a perfect moment for it. But the other interesting thing about the uh, modern Olympics is being in Athens, the hoi polloi in Athens, and many um, international people as well wanted the Olympics to always take place in Greece. They didn't want it to leave Athens because this was seen as a spiritual home, it seemed like a, a reasonable location um, for people to come and spend uh, their spring and then obviously as it developed into their summer in Greece every four years. But the Coubertin, because all of the admin had been done in Paris, the Olympic Games had already been scheduled for 1900 in Paris. And so it was very difficult to go back to Athens to the point that the next time the Olympics was held in Athens was 2004, <laughs> 108 years later. Can you, you could, I mean, I can't even imagine the, um, you know, you could do a podcast on that in itself, like the sliding doors decision. What that would mean for Greece, modern Greece um, today, you know, economically, they'd be a totally different place politically as well. You know, if the, if, the Olympics had taken off and is as popular as it is today, but it was only ever in Athens. That would that would mean loads for Greek tourism. Obviously, they do well with tourism anyway, you know. But like, it would be crazy, wouldn't it? Yeah, I think it also be the sense that the the eyes of the world are on you every four years, and so that does something to a country as well. I think. Yeah, you know, yeah. that pe- people do. Uh, they're on the best behavior. They do kind of. Uh, they do have a sense of civic pride, etc. But I also think it would have a huge impact upon the Olympics. Would the Olympics have, um, you know, become what it is today had yeah, it just well, been it, held in it? Athens? Yeah. Would it still be in existence? I mean, part of the attraction of the Olympics is that it does—it is like a traveling show. It does go around different countries. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and and does have you know every city that hosts it has their moments in the sun but there's other sports which are popular globally which are based in one you know they have the majors in one city like the tennis or the golf or formula one you know although i suppose the formula one travels yeah they still travel around a little bit but you know they go back to the same places for the majors i don't know yeah it's a it's really fascinating uh, like dilemma i think you know the fact that um the move by de Cooperton was already kind of built in before the uh tournament um happens the first olympics happens just paves the way for it almost never to go back to athens it's mm. 108 108 years absence which is extraordinary really when you consider how many times paris london you know <laughs> LA <laughs> you know t- uh, cities that have had it multiple times and Athens has only had it twice yeah in its in its history and i suppose like on that the way that the olympics grew you know i said at the start 14 countries um 241 athletes by the time paris comes around not in 1900 but in 1924, when Paris hosts the Olympics again, <laughs> they're up to 3,000, over 3,000 athletes. A hundred of them are women. So they've started uh, letting them in now. And 44 different countries taking part. Interestingly, in uh, 1896, de uh, was asked about why women weren't allowed to participate. He said that it was impractical uninteresting unesthetic and incorrect right okay i was waiting for yeah some insightful comments there <laughs> <laughs> it was a different time matt and uh 1924 olympics was de Coubertin's last involvement in the olympics he stepped down uh, a year after the paris olympic games where women were allowed to participate and as uh, listeners avid listeners to the wheel of sport would know uh even things like the iconic events of the marathon women weren't allowed to compete in until the Los Angeles Olympic Games of 1984. Amazing that these things um, take a long time to get around, but some brilliant stories in uh, in the way that Great that stories. paved the way. And um, I just think so brilliant as well. That, um, we look at the USA who really dominated track and field and then went on and have gone on for over a century to dominate track and field. Um, but, there's a, a a really lo- we'll finish on this which is a really lovely dilemma for the for obviously uh prince george and his uh other um advisors was in the 100 meters because tom burke thomas burke of the usa he was a multiple gold medal winner in these games but he had a very unusual style to start the sprint which was that he would crouch down on one knee that was where it was invented was it yeah no other runner was on one knee and they described it uh they were unsure of whether to actually penalize him or disqualify him for this what they described as an uncomfortable stance and And what what was the decision they allowed it little were they to know that by allowing this and then him going on to be the the fastest runner um, they actually paved the way for what is now the standard stance mm-hmm. of the ready, set, go, 
which wow. which we see at every sprint event, which is extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, that's so, again, really interesting. Thomas Burke, I mean, so many different stories in there. And, and what a great time it would have been from uh, Spyridon Louis, the Greek who won the marathon, all the way to Launceston Elliot, uh, wrestling gymnasts being fancied by the Greek population. I mean, I don't know if he ever made it back to Scotland, but <laughs> <laughs> I think I would have been hard pushed. <laughs> That's brilliant. Oh, mate, thank you so much for that. What a, what a great story. Multiple great stories. Love it. Love it. And thanks very much to the listeners uh, out there. Thanks very much for, for tuning in again. Please get in touch with us uh, at thewheelofsport at gmail.com or on Instagram or Twitter at thewheelofsport. Leave us a review as well wherever you're, you're, you're listening to this. Uh, reviews really do make a massive difference, so uh, please do so. But yeah, if you've got any suggestions for shows, uh, we love to have them. And uh, yeah, I hope everyone's staying safe and well. Thanks, Matt. I think uh, I'm about to... Uh do what Tom Burke did and get down on one knee see (laughs) see you next time see you mate all the best